Welcome to the Global Band Room, a podcast about bands and musicians across the world. My name is Keith Kelly, and I'm a band director from the west coast of Ireland. Each episode, I sit down with musicians to talk about their stories and bands and how they're making an impact in their communities. Before we start, you can find out more about the podcast and the people and stories that we feature over at globalbandroom.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Global Bandroom. All of the Global Bandroom podcasts are brought to you by Kaleidoscope Adventures. Find out how you can travel beyond expectations at mykatrip.com. Now on with the show. Welcome back to the Global Band Room, and I'm really happy today to eventually be able to connect. Uh, we we have tried to connect an, a number of times uh, and, and not been able to make that happen. And then we were able to connect at Kitty O'Shea's, and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that uh, and, and talking at Midwest. We did talk briefly on our Midwest uh, clinic special, uh, and I'm delighted to be able to welcome for a full interview and a full conversation today, uh, Amy Boven, who is the Interim Associate Director of Bands and Visiting Assess- Assistant Professor of Music at Texas A&M Kingsville and the Head Director of the Pride of the South Texas Havelinas Marching Band. So we get to talk about all things concert and marching band today, which is my favorite, as many of my listeners know. Amy, welcome to the Global Band Room. How are you? Good. I'm great. Yeah, it's great that we're finally able to do this. It is, and I made I made a brief mention of our. We did get to connect uh, right. in at Midwest, and uh, yeah, we met at where where all the best meetings happen, right? At, at Kitty O'Shea's in the it's in the hill at Kitty O'Shea's or the Hilton Bar, one of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's the it's really it's the other Midwest. <laughs> it is, you know, especially especially for an Irish man. I'll tell you that it's it's expected of me to be right. to be. But there. it wasn't expected of you to have that milkshake. It it wasn't, and I think we should probably tell the tell the listeners about this. I will put the photo up on the show notes too. Um, yeah, so so um, uh, Amy was uh, very gracious. Well, I think the the, the drinks had. had come from someone in the bar somewhere uh some sort of uh, interesting milkshake with uh we call them hundreds and thousands um a uh, little little oh we call them sprinkles oh sprinkles right yeah, okay sprinkles <laughs> with sprinkles yeah. around it was very very bougie uh actually it was that's what it was called right a bougie milkshake it was called yeah the bougie milkshake <laughs> it was on their dessert menu and one of the best things about midwest is you meet everyone and so someone that i, I don't remember who he was so Thank you, whoever it was, just started buying a bunch of milkshakes for people because we're like, oh, this looks fantastic. And of course, I said I had to give you one just so we could see an Irish man in an Irish pub <laughs> drinking a milkshake with colored sprinkles all over. Well, I, 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 it's funny because when I'm when I'm in the US and uh, if I'm not drinking a Guinness or a Jameson, people call me out on it. Like even if I'm drinking like a Corona or a Budweiser or something like that, I'm called out on it. And so... To go all the way to a milkshake, a bougie milkshake, and I, I still don't know what alcohol was in it, but it was. It, it was you know whiskey. what? It was lovely. What was it? It was whiskey. It was whiskey. Okay, well then, you know that's maybe. They had well, to make Irish, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I very much appreciate it, and I really enjoyed enjoyed my time with you uh, and with Tim and with Caitlin as well. Caitlin, Caitlin yes, all the yes. way too at at at, um, at, at Kitty O'Shea's. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit. We, we, you know, this we're recording this in January. Um, it, you know, it's going to be published in early February, and I think it's still time to talk about 2022 and our approach to 2022. And that's kind of where I want to get started with our conversation today. I want to find out more about you as well and about the program. But I want to start with 2022. You know, you uh, you're you're teaching in in, in Texas uh, right now, and and that's in a very different place to maybe some of my other guests that I've uh, been able to to bring onto the podcast recently. Um, a recent podcast guest, uh, Apivut Manale from uh, from Thailand, uh, they've just recently gone into full lockdown again. I mean, like the beginning of the uh, of the pandemic here in Ireland, we're sort of in a in a halfway place. We you know we just. Probably the hard, you know, probably the hardest because we don't know what situation we're in. And in Texas, um, obviously, it's been quite open actually for quite some yeah. time. Um, tell me how you're approaching 2022. Is there any uncertainty? Is there any sort of anxiety there that we we might have challenges this year? I think 
the best way to sum up 2022 for everyone is that 2020 and 2021 prepared us for 2022. That's a good point. Yeah. And that we have no idea what's going to happen. And we have to take everything day by day, even here in Texas. Uh, I know that it's probably going to be a little bit different, especially where I am in Kingsville, which is pretty secluded. Okay. And so before I left for the holidays, it, you know, a lot of people didn't have masks on that we were almost, it was almost back to normal, whatever normal was because we had such a low positivity, right? Because we are so secluded where, you know, I'm from the New York area. I'm from Connecticut and there, it looks like they're almost starting to go into a full lockdown mode and schools are starting to get canceled there. And I just came from Florida, which is kind of a little bit half and half. And I used to live in Utah and Utah is starting to think about what's going on. So we really have no idea. I mean, right now I'm in the middle of programming as if we're going to have a normal semester and all my ensembles are going to meet in person exactly as we did. You know, we didn't have bell covers. If a student wanted to wear a mask, then they're able to, if a, a professor wanted to. So I'm planning for the normal, but knowing that I already have two years at this point, we all have two years of what could possibly happen if we have to go virtual. Right. There's, like, there's almost like a certainty in the uncertainty. Yeah. <laughs> like we're certain of being uncertain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that at this point over the last two years, we've, unless I'm wrong, so I hope I'm not wrong, I feel like we've been through every single possible scenario. Oh, don't say so, that. I don't have any wood. I don't want to say that, but I'm just saying like, knock on wood. I have wood over here, but, um, <laughs> you know, we, we know that it's possible to go fully virtual. We know it's possible to go right. fully in person. We know that there's a mix of the two of somewhere. And, you know, so because, and because I've been all over the country in the last two years and I've seen all different things, I feel honestly pretty prepared. Again, could be completely wrong tomorrow. <laughs> Who knows what happens? But I do feel that, you know, if something comes up, just go back in your memory, like, okay, what did I do seven months ago? What did I do 12 months ago? What did I do 18 months ago? You know, and just go like that and we, we, we do like we have different, different approaches now because we've, we've probably, you through your travels, of course, yes. and, and been in different levels of lockdown because of that. And, and, and I really want to get into that as well, because you've had an interesting couple of years. Yes. Uh, but here, <laughs> here in Ireland, for example, we, we have different phases of lockdown and we're told that we're in category two or we're in category five. And, and so, um, sort of without, without meaning to our band has sort of, you know, got a different approach for each one of those those phases now and it, it, that seems to be kind of what you're saying is that we we have a lot of different we have a lot more tools than we had in in march of 2020 i guess exactly that and now we have experience you know march of 2020 none of us knew what we were doing and we were all just kind of making it up but at this point we do have two years like i keep saying of you know, we we've done it so we know the possibilities it's kind of like hope for the best plan for the worst type scenario which as band directors i feel like we're doing all the time anyway <laughs> right. I, you know, I recently spoke to someone about this. I can't remember who it was, but, you know, as band directors, we're so we're so we have to be so resourceful anyway, because we're not given that many resources. Now, having said that, you've just moved to Texas and uh, we're all very envious of the, the resources that the Texas bands have. But but you you've seen the full scope of, of what bands uh, potentially have or have not sometimes. And, and so we, we all, you know, including the Texas band directors too, have to be resourceful and have yes. to be creative in how we, we, we make the best of our, of our programs. Um, tell me, you know, speaking of being resourceful, I think, I think you're right. I think the last couple of years we, we've created more tools and we exploited more tools that were available to us previously, but we may not have used. Is there anything that you think that you've used um, in the last two years that you'll continue to use, even if we're fully back, fully back to normal? I, 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 you know, is there is there anything from, you know, any technology that you use that you would like to continue to do? So as far as technology, and I have to say I'm a little bit biased of this because this was actually my first published study, was on sightreadingfactory.com. And it's really, I, I went and because of my study, so I can say studies have shown that it actually does enhance music notational literacy in students just because it has like an endless amount of examples that you can do. You can put in exactly what you want to use. If you want to focus on a certain time signature, a certain key signature, a certain 
really anything, any sort of articulations, you can put that in. So I think using that continually and especially teaching that I teach uh, high school methods. So I'm teaching my students how to be band directors and telling them, you know, to we have to keep focusing on those basics. We have to keep focusing on the music literacy. And it's not so much about the concerts anymore because we don't know if the concerts are going to happen but we still want to teach music to these students. And I think that that's kind of what we first learned as a slap in the face in, in March, April, 2020, that, oh, our concerts aren't going to happen, but we still need to teach music. So it's kind of taking everything that we knew, flipping it on its head. And now we know it could go either way. It's either, do we have that concert? Do we not? But in the middle are all those techniques such as sight reading, such as learning the scales, such as, you know, tone, intonation, all of that, is still, that's what we're really teaching them. The concert is just where we get to show those elements that the students learned and they get to show all of that. Uh, sight reading is a great example of that, I think, as well, yeah. isn't it? Like it's it's building this fundamental that should we then get to a point of of, of uh, normality uh, as such, and I, I, I will not use the words new, norm, new normal, but if we yeah. do get back to normal, normal and we, we're, we're performing concerts, if we've improved sight reading through that time, well, then we'll be able to push out concerts and performances much, much quicker. Uh, and it's something, uh, I mean, listen, I, I mean, I'll be honest, uh, and I'm sure lots of band directors out there feel this way as well. I don't concentrate on sight reading anywhere near as much as I should. As a performer, I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> as a teacher, I don't. And as a, as a director, I probably haven't as I much. I mean, I can admit, as a performer, especially in uh, <laughs> in undergraduate, <laughs> I did sight reading when I forgot to prepare something for a lesson. So, <laughs> you had that lesson in 15 minutes. You go, oh, man, I forgot that. And then you're just there. Yeah, yeah, I've totally practiced this all week. So I became a very good sight reader in college because right. <laughs> I found myself yeah. doing it. But it's I do right, a lot of, you know, the military bands were, were great for that as well. Because, you know, yes. you're, you don't, you're not given any sort of rehearsal time. It's like this function right. is on, this national anthem has to be played, this march has to be played. And you're, you're just, you're sight reading all, all of the time. And I, I also did a lot of pit work um, over the years too, where you might run in and depth for someone and sight read a two-hour show that you haven't before. The hardest thing about that, of course, is just changing the instruments because <laughs> you yeah, don't know what exactly. to expect. You know, but but yes, sight reading, uh, and I'm just I'm seeing this sightreadingfactory.com as well. Tell me a little bit more about this because this is a new tool that I wasn't uh, that I wasn't uh, aware of. So it's been around for a while. I don't know how long exactly how long it's been around. It's now part of the Music First software package that uh, educators can buy, and it honestly works for every level. So you can go in, you can choose your instrumentation that you want or your ensemble that you want. You can choose if it's an ensemble, if they're all going to play the same thing. Is it all going to be unison or do you want to do something more with everyone having a different part, similar to if you had a band piece and it works for choir too, a choir piece, you can do just rhythm. And then you go through and you choose the level you want. You choose your time signature, your key signature. If you want to do custom, then you can go through and customize exactly the example. But because of the type of program that it is, because of the analytics in it and the software that was used to create this program, you're never going to see the same example twice. Great. So once you choose what you want, you can go through and just click next and we'll have all the same things. And it's going to be something new that you're never going to see before. You can go through, you can do it as timed. You can even, if you find something you like, you can save it, make it into a PDF, send it out to students, which is what I was doing a lot at the beginning of 2020. Oh, it looks like my cat has joined us. This is Lily. <laughs> Hi, Lily. <laughs> Lily is a beautiful gray and white cat for any of our listeners. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes, she is. So she's probably going to be joining us a little bit. But anyway, so you can go through and it's, it's really, it is a great program. And I did do a study on it back in 2017, I believe, to see if it would increase music literacy in eighth grade students. And it did. It worked very, very well. And it wow. really works at every level that you really can. So I know I sound like I'm a little bit of a salesperson right now, <laughs> but I do really believe in the program and or any type of sight reading that you can possibly do because it does, like you said, it, it, it makes you a better musician. And if you have better musicians, you're going to have a better ensemble. Well, 
the link to sightreadingfactory.com is going to be in the uh, show notes. Uh, I, I can see that it that it's available for phone and iPad as well, just for anyone that's thinking about maybe using this with their students. Uh, I'm certainly going to be, it's just after saving it to my book, bookmarks. So I'm going to be d- d- delving deep into this. Awesome. Um, and over, my, over um, my article is in the Journal for Music Technology and Education. Super. Well, we'll definitely link to that too. And I'm and, and looking forward to, to getting uh, stuck into this. I love finding out about new tools. That's always, yeah. always my favorite. One of the most exciting parts of any journey is the anticipation of the adventure to come. Planning your route, investigating the attractions and researching the local culture. But sometimes as music educators, it's easy to get swept up in the mountain of work it takes to bring your students on that next band trip. And that joy and anticipation can be lost, or worse, can turn into dread. With over 28 years of experience, Kaleidoscope Adventures has a world-class team of travel and performance experts ready to make this process not just easy, but exciting, leaving you and your students to continue doing what you do best and looking forward to an experience of a lifetime. When you're ready to travel beyond expectations, contact Kaleidoscope Adventures at mykatrip.com Amy, let's find out a little bit about you. I mentioned briefly about your 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 journey over the last couple of years teaching in different parts of the US. Uh, but let's 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 take a step back from that even. Um uh so you're a flute player, uh, you're a woodwind yes, player like my like like myself. Um and that front row uh, of musicians seems to produce a lot of uh, great conductors and a lot of uh, a lot of music educators. We, we you know, we, you, the, the closer that you sit to the conductor, maybe I think sometimes <laughs> the more you want to be. You want to just keep getting closer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What's the next step? Well, right. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about your your background. Did you um, did you come from a musical family, Amy? So, yes, I did come from a musical family, even though they will never admit that they are. (laughs) When I was three years old, my mom started me on piano that she said, you need to start on piano. So she started teaching me piano. And then when she couldn't teach me anymore, uh, when I was five, I actually started classical piano lessons. My father is actually a wonderful singer, even though, again, he'll never admit it. But he was in the top singing ensembles in high school and throughout his university. So he's actually a very, very good singer. My aunt is actually a songwriter. And so she is a singer, songwriter, can play piano as well. And so I did have a lot of musical influences. But I think, honestly, one of the biggest things beside my parents' support is my my religion and my culture, that I'm Jewish. And so I grew up in a Jewish family. I went to Hebrew school. And all, even though we're, you know, one of the oldest cultures that our calendar year, we're in 5782 right now. So it's not 2022 for us. It's 5782. (laughs) How's Um, it there in the future? (laughs) Yeah, I know. We're in the future. Um, (laughs) We have a lot of uh, melodies that we learn and the whole way that we learn even about chanting the Torah and any of our prayers, it's all melodic. So I grew up surrounded by music constantly, even before I got into grade school. And then in fourth grade, that's when I was able to choose an instrument. And the story behind that is my mother always wanted me to play saxophone. And so when I brought home the sheet of paper, which says, what are you going to play? She put down saxophone as first, flute as second something else for third. I went in that day to turn in my paper. I noticed all my friends were playing flute. So I was like, well, I can't play saxophone. I had to play flute. So I actually crossed off my mother's handwriting, switched the two, put flute as one, saxophone as two, and then turned in the paper because it already had her signature on it. <laughs> and so I came on with the flute. <laughs> well, my, I didn't. I didn't have such luck. My granny brought me by the hand and stood there beside me as I was uh, as as uh, I was told what instrument I was going to be played by her. <laughs> I wanted to be a trumpet player, um, but uh, so so and flute. You know, you you uh, you played flute all the way through high school and, and college, like most of my US guests. Um, yes. at, at what point did you realize that this was something that you were going to do? Uh, and was performance ever something that you just wanted to do as as a as a career, or was it always music education? So I knew because both my parents were teachers. So I I think I just knew I wanted to be a teacher. There's pictures of me when I was really young. My brother's four and a half years younger than me. Of me teaching him outside on a giant rock. 
and with like a chalk when he was a baby, like I'm trying to teach him stuff. And my first job was actually teaching at the synagogue that I went and I taught. So I always knew I wanted to be a teacher, but I honestly didn't know what type of teacher I wanted to be. My mom was a math teacher and I was very accelerated in math. Actually, when I got to eighth grade, I there were no other math classes I could possibly take. So I would have had to go to the high school to start taking more math classes. But my mom said, no, she didn't want me to do that. So we just kind of figured it out from there. Um, but now she's finally proud of me because I have a PhD. So I finally <laughs> used that math skill. But it seemed like uh, in middle school band, I really, really enjoyed it. It was where I found my place. I think a lot of educators, you know, instrumental, vocal, uh, general, we, we have that moment where we know that that music classroom is where we belong. So I think I kind of put the two together and I always knew that I wanted to be a band director probably starting in about eighth grade. Uh, performance was a little bit of a thing, but I think it was more of the teaching side of it that I, I just, I always wanted to teach. And when I got to undergraduate, I just, I fell in love with conducting. I thought it was just absolutely fantastic. And it was one of the closest things to magic that we have on earth to real magic about you wave your arm and something happens and it influences another person. And it's just, to me, it was, it was magical. So that's why I started to go that route for my master's. Yeah. I, I, I often talk to the kids in the, in the, in the band about, you know, the, the baton being, being the wand, uh, you know, yes. and, and the closest thing to the closest thing to magic that we have is this music yeah. because uh, it's something that kind of words can't describe what it is. Um, right. and uh, I do, I, I, I subscribe to that belief that music is the closest thing we have to magic too. Um, tell me, you say you fell in love with conducting. Is that the reason that you decided that you wanted to teach at a collegiate level? Was there any other, had you considered middle school or high school at any point? I, there's such I different careers really in many ways. I think when I was in high school, I considered high school. When I started undergraduate, I considered high school. And then as I started to go and student teach, I did fall in love with it. And I fell in love with, you know, marching band, especially in college at the University of Connecticut and the, we call it the UCMB, the University of Connecticut marching band. And Dr. David Mills was a huge influence and still is on me. And I think just from that and seeing what he did every day, I remember when I was a junior and this is in the, the old program for any UConn alumni that are listening. So this is the old two degree program. So when I was a junior and had my interview for the School of Education, I remember sitting there in that room and looking Dr. Mills in the eye and going, I want your job one day. And that's when I said, I, I want the collegiate level. And I well, really, I think he was a big influence. And although I don't have his job, <laughs> I do, you know, this past year, I do have my own collegiate marching band now. So I, I was able to accomplish my goals. That's fantastic. So you had a, you had a, an exact position that you, you wanted to pursue and, and were single-minded yes. in, 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 in achieving that. Were you ever swayed any towards any other careers, Amy? Was there anything that was kind of maybe sort of beckoning in another, in another parallel universe? What, what is, uh, what, 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 what do you do? Uh, I would be a lawyer. a lawyer. I actually, I really, I really enjoy law. Uh, I think for those of you that know me or my friends that know me, that I am pretty good at convincing people of my, of my viewpoints. Um, and I do, I just, I, re I really enjoy law and especially just standing up for those that need a voice and helping. And I think that that's where it relates to teaching as well. So at the start of the pandemic, actually, Harvard was putting on online courses for free that you could apply to take. And I was able to take them. So I took a number of classes in educational law and have some certificates from Harvard. Just Fantastic. because after I finished my doctorate, I just had to keep going. So <laughs> I had to think of something <laughs> to do. And I think that that's what I would do. But before that, I actually going back to the math side of me and back to high school, I got a half scholarship to Ithaca to be a physics major because I had such high scores on what we have in the US AP tests. And since I took all of the math classes and I took all the calculus classes and I took all the physics classes and I was like, well, I guess I could maybe be a physics teacher. 
And so when I told Ithaca I didn't want to go there to become a music major, that I turned down my acceptance, they sent me something that said, oh, well, how about if we gave you a half scholarship to be a physics major? And I was like, that's really cool. Still not going to do it, but that's pretty cool. That is cool. And, yeah. and But I see a common thread, though, with education is, is, is core to all of those, even yeah. those parallel Amy's are all educators yes. of some sort, uh, educational law, physics teaching, um, and, and, and this universe, we're very happy that, that you s- decided to, to go into the world of music education. Um, let's talk marching band uh, for a bit. So, so UConn had a, had, a, had a good marching program. I, I'm, yes. I'm not particularly familiar with it. So, so tell me about your, your experience in marching band and why that was one of the uh, parts of wanting to become a music educator. So I started marching band when I was in ninth grade in high school, and we were at, which is in uh, Danbury, Connecticut, which is actually the home of Charles Ives, which is where I grew up. And we had a marching band that we were either like, we got second place in the States, we were almost one of the best, or we were absolutely last. And it went back and <laughs> forth every year. And I just had fun. I had a great time. It's where I met my closest friends, some that I'm still friends with today, even from that high school marching band. So I knew I wanted to do marching band in college. And so then I went to the University of Connecticut. I joined that marching band. My undergraduate program was a five-year program with two degrees. And I, I mean, I went from a marching band of about 70, 75 people in high school to over 300 in college. And it's a division one. So it's, uh, we play, you know, the games that you see on TV is what we were doing. And, you know, the division one football in the big stadium, you know, that big American football stadium and with all the crowd cheering for you. And it was just, it was at a time that UConn football was at the top of its game, pun intended there. And it was, it was just, it was a fantastic experience. I absolutely loved it. My fourth year, I became drum major. My fifth year, I was the head drum major of the Yukon marching band. And we had about 325. We actually had a waiting list that year. I mean, we were going to bowl games, both in the States and internationally. We went to Toronto and it was just a fantastic experience. You know, I got to travel with them and then, um, when basketball season came around, you had your UConn basketball team, which that's for anyone who's a sports fan, UConn's women's basketball is by far, I mean, this is facts that we are probably one of the best programs, uh, for basketball. We're the basketball wow. capital of the world. We have like 11 championships. So going to final fours and national championship games. And I just, I so- fell in love with collegiate sports and collegiate band. So your season wasn't over early like many of the no. ma- many bands might be. You 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 kept going. <laughs> Our season went pretty much from August when we had preseasons or band camp all the way until I mean we were in April with because well, we were going to be going to a you know a final four. We might not make it to the national championship game, but at that point we were we were going to go to a final four. So it was college was banned for me. I had maybe one month of it not. <laughs> and now you're 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 head director of the 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 marching band there at Texas A and M. And tell me, you know, what? Here's a question that I ask to to a number of the guests that have come onto the podcast before. And the here in in Europe, sometimes there's a there's a. Uh, debate between the value between marching band and concert band i know that that debate exists within uh, mm-hmm. within the u.s as well but marching band is so prominent within the u.s uh, to you is marching band something that adds value to the music program beyond just the 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 spirit of the the college is there music education uh, that can be done through the marching band or is it something that you know music educators have to do in order to keep the music program going. Uh, what what value do you think that the marching band brings to the student, uh, in your opinion? You're going to be learning skills that you're never going to learn anywhere else. That a marching band is that team where there is no defense. It's all offense. It's whatever you are doing, you are working together to make something happen. It's Mainly, if you look at it from the purely educational standpoint of constructivist techniques and different, you know, 21st century techniques that we want to instill in our students, there is a lot of peer teaching. 
There is a lot of co-teaching, right. you know, marching band is probably one of the only ensembles, unless you have like a, a chamber ensemble or a piece where you're just not going to conduct where every single performance, the director is not conducting that we're doing everything we possibly can. And then we're like, I'm like the mama bird that gets to stand back and watch them fly and hope that they're doing it themselves, but they're doing everything themselves. And, and, and with- you see most of those future music educators you're seeing, like DCI is a great example of the, uh, you know, the, exactly. the podcast listeners I know are, are a lot of them are DCI fans. Um, the drum majors are nearly all music future music educators now i mean you know even compared to 20 years ago 30 years ago from interviews that i've done with people that know these things say that you know 20 30 years ago that wasn't the case but now most of the drum majors a lot of the core members are future music educators um i'd say you know the the majority of young band directors that are out there now at the moment being a drum major is probably the first time that they had an opportunity to fall in love with the art of conducting i'd say were you a drum major by any chance amy Yes, I was. And I actually think that the first time is when you're a section leader. So I was a section leader. My first time I was a section leader was my second year of high school. And then I was section leader my second year of college. And there you are leading just your section. So just the flutes for me, just the flutes or piccolos. And you have to conduct. You have to be able to lead a sectional and run them through the music. And so me as a sophomore is telling my group of peers what I think musically should be happening. How should we project here? How should we blend here? Okay, we have to even tune to start and helping each other out and counting and just coming up on the spot with what to do. And you're not going to really get that anywhere else. Yes, you are going to have, you know, sectionals every once in a while if the schedule or location allows for it in the concert band, but it's so different. And, you know, for me, I was drum major in college for two years. And was but that your first? So, so you 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 conducting with the section section was, but w- w- had you decided that you wanted to become a conductor at that point, or was it when when you were a drum major that you made that decision, or was it at college? So, my first time I ever conducted an ensemble was my senior year of high school. My band director let me conduct a piece on the concert, and I think that's when I was like, "Whoa, this is really cool." Cool. And then when I was, yes, my, my first year as drum major was the first time I really got to conduct a college band. And I absolutely, I loved it. It was between that. And honestly, my conducting course with um, Dr. Jeffrey Renshaw, who is one of Fennell's students. And so learning from him and just all the knowledge and experience that he has, and he is just his wisdom and that's where I fell in love, I think, with conducting was honestly my undergraduate conducting class. So those leadership qualities that uh, students are gaining in the marching band uh, setting, um, Mm -hmm. I see more and more conversations and more and more uh, books being written, organizations being set up. We talked to Chris Harrard recently about about something uh, that is being launched at TMEA this year. there's more talk about leadership within the band room now as well and, and student mm-hmm. leadership within the band room. Do you see them as transferable skills? That Because a lot of the time, you know, section leaders in a concert band can become, you know, they play the solos and that's it. Um, do you see that, that those, those skills that you're teaching in leadership of marching band, are they transferring to the concert band room? Yes, they are. Absolutely. 100%. Uh, you know, it's, it's all the same stuff. We're doing all the same things, you know, how are you going to project? What's your tone going to sound like here? You know, dynamics, articulations, it's just a different concert hall is all it is. It's just, it's outside. So you need to play not necessarily different. It's just different things to think about where every time, you know, a concert band goes into a concert hall, it's probably, you know, you might be in a different location and you're thinking about it as well. This is just, another step up that you have even more environments to go off of and more environments to learn how to sound good in lack of better terms. Like how do I sound good for myself and with everybody else? And what can I do as a musician to make this band sound better? So you you do see it a lot, especially in, I mean, down here in Texas, everything is marching band. It's all marching band, football and stakes. Like that's pretty much what we got down here. And And, you know, and 
when I was just working with one of the region bands and most of the students are in marching band, they all there or actually all are in marching band and working with them on the podium, you can relate to that and you can, you can call upon that and their skills and think, okay, think about what you were doing on the marching band field, you know, just a month ago. And how did you have to make your articulation sound a little bit clearer in this section and maybe putting a little bit of space in between those accents so you have that bigger hit, so you get that bigger general effect score that you want in that better musicality score. Be like, okay, we're about to go play in a gym. Think about what that's going to sound like and use those skills that you just had, you know, either playing in a bowl in the San Antonio bowl. And let's transfer that to this piece that we're doing here. So, Amy, you've been on a journey in the, in, in recent history, um, and you've gone all the way from Connecticut, as we've talked about, to Texas, but there's been a few stops on the way. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey and uh, what brought you to Texas? So I'm from Connecticut. I grew up right outside the New York area, about an hour away from Manhattan. As I said, it was Danbury, Connecticut, so the home of Charles Ives, and I taught all around the state, which I know to a lot of people, it seems like a very small state, but there's a lot there. So I taught in all different parts of the state. When COVID hit in 2020, I was at a high school program, one of the largest ones that was in the state. And as and then honestly, 2020, we went into full lockdown. I didn't leave my apartment for 10 weeks. We were basically on like a martial law. And I didn't know what it was going to look like in the spring. At the time, I was president of the MEA, the Music Education Association. I was working with the State Department and actually our new U.S. Um, Education Secretary, Dr. Miguel Cardona. So him and I actually were working together to figure out what is it going to look like when we reopen. And it seemed like band wasn't going to happen. And I said, okay, I can't do that. So I ended up going out to Utah and it was Tim who you got to meet. So him and I just first started dating at that time because he's working and finishing up on his DMA right now. And so I was like, you know what? I kind of like this guy. I have some (laughs) friends out there and I know band's going to happen. And a lot of my friends that are in Utah, more than I even realized at the time, offered me to come and work with their bands. They just, they wanted me to work with their bands and their programs around the state. So I said, great, let's do it. So I packed up my stuff, drove across the country and lived in Utah. And then during the pandemic, I was working with a number of bands out there and honestly applying for college jobs that I just got that PhD. I was like, okay, now it's time to get that goal that I set for myself years ago. I applied to a number of places didn't know what was going to happen. I had a couple decisions to make of where I was actually going to end up and which you know offer I was going to get. And just something about down here in Texas just spoke to me. And I said, yes, I need this job. And now I'm down here in Texas. And I Because I could see that it. going either way, Amy. I could see Texas being either intimidating yes. or rewarding, uh, you know, and, and being something to that you want to run towards. But but I could see also people being intimidated. Was there any intimidation there moving to Texas for, for band uh, or um, was this something that you wanted? A little bit. I never thought it was possible. I, I okay. honestly never thought it was possible. And even looking back to when I first learned about Texas bands in probably high school and, you know, the environment and how supportive the schools are and just, you know, the culture of band down here. I never thought in a million years, someone like me, A, could be a band director just because I'm a woman, which that's an entirely different subject. But I didn't know if I could be a college band director because I didn't know any female college band directors. And then even just teaching in Texas in any capacity, at any level of music, I went, there's no way this is going to happen. So when I got the call, that I was accepted to the job, part of me was like, there's no way this is real. Am I dreaming? (laughs) Like, am I awake? Like one of those, I have to pinch myself moments. And I was like, wow, this is real. And I, I had to take it. I had to take this opportunity. Very few have this opportunity. And I'm glad I did because we soon found out that upon accepting the job, I'm the first female head marching band director of the entire Texas A&M system, which is about 22 campuses and over a hundred years, it was founded in the 1800s, the late 1800s. And out of all of that, there's never been, as far as we know, we couldn't find it. So if there is, you know, someone 
by far correct us. But as far as we could find out, there's never been a female head marching band director. That's that's a fantastic achievement, Amy, and, and huge, huge congratulations on it. And, um, you know, it's part of there, there are a lot of conversations happening. We had Caitlin Bove on the on the on the podcast recently. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, there are more conversations happening about giving more opportunity for for uh, female band directors, uh, people of color uh, to get into positions of of, of responsibility Um have you found that opportunities have been open to you? Uh, do you find that you have to um, do you have to negotiate things differently? Um, do you think we're heading in the right direction? And, and how can we make sure that we are heading in the right direction uh, in music education generally? I mean, globally, we, not, not everywhere is as advanced as, as the U.S. would be. And some places might be more so. No, it is. There, there definitely are places that are more so. So. It's hard to answer that question because there's a lot of parts to it. Um, there is. But <laughs> let's go with, are we heading in the right direction? Yes and no. So I think some people are starting to open up their eyes a little bit more and just realize what's around. And it's not that people have been necessarily walking around with their eyes closed or blinded. It's just sometimes you just don't realize, you know, we've been doing things in band is full of tradition, which there are some great traditions in band and there's some great things and, and, but when you really start and look around, there's a lot that's actually missing. The puzzle isn't as complete as we think that it is. However, when I started doing my research to look at the number of female band directors, the numbers are actually going down. Really? Or they were going down. Yes. And this is for at least for high school band directors. From 2001 to 2015, the numbers decreased almost by 5% that it went down from about one in every four band directors were female to one in every five. And so a lot of females were leaving the profession or at least at that level. And so that brought upon my dissertation that I did. And um, in my dissertation, I interviewed about half of the current high school band directors. So it was like one of the largest studies and it was the only really nationwide quantitative study on that subject that's ever existed. So I have the statistics and it's due to a lot of negative experiences that women have faced, including, you know, sexism, harassment of different types. And it's just, it's, it's been a lot for a lot of women and they just, a lot of them just don't want to deal with it anymore and are leaving. But at the same time, I think a lot of people are starting to recognize that. So they're making appropriate changes to get more in. And it's great that we're having the conversations about culture and about color and everything else that we're having. And because we're even at, you know, back to here in the US a hundred years ago of just having women as equal, no matter the color, no matter what our backgrounds are, we're still not even equal in this right. profession, at least at this level, at the collegiate or secondary level in band. On the flip side, we have that for men at, you know, the secondary level, that women are by far, you know, the majority. And so getting men that want to be elementary educators in. So it's just trying to balance the scales while adding in, I mentioned the puzzle before, adding in all those other puzzle pieces at the same time. Hugely important, yes, to, to have to have men at that elementary or primary level, as as we would call it, call it here, um, just to get rid of that stereotype of the, you know, the, that toxic sort of male t stereotype that we can't be the caregiver. Um, I fully agree with you on that. Um, I, can I can I ask, are you concerned, or is there a concern? Because that those statistics really surprise me, and 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 uh, and it it almost goes against. A lot of the conversation that seems to be happening because the conversation is increasing, right? But the conversation isn't leading to the results that we are looking for. Is there a concern that the the the, the trend stops at conversation that we that we have all of these great clinics happening and great conversations, and then people feel that the job is done? And and you know, is there a concern there that that might be happening? I just because it does surprise me. Honestly. Yeah, no, it is. It is surprising. And I think, honestly, my kind of gotcha moment that I have when I discuss the research that I found is that a lot of the negative experiences, I've never mentioned the gender that they're coming from. Right. It's actually from other women. 
that we the, the more extreme ones such as sexual harassment that's coming from men but right. a lot of the other experiences are actually coming from women and it's an alpha female complex that we're starting to see and that we can actually see at all levels that as soon as a woman makes it in this profession and does something and gets that award and is in the news and i have to say that yes i'm on either side of this and that it seems like, oh, okay. And it's very hard for anyone else to get into that boys club. And it, yes, it is a boys club, but we can name a couple conductors and a couple women that are in the boys club. And maybe I am starting to become in that club too. And I need to make sure that I need to stay open and be as you know helpful as possible for the next generation of women. That, that you're holding the door open rather right. than, right, well, I'm in now, so... We close the door yeah. after. Uh, that's that. That's also very surprising. And and can you give not examples of people, of course, but examples of 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 how that um of of how women might be able to help each other to um create more opportunities. Uh, some of the people that we've had on the podcast, obviously yourself and uh, and Caitlin and uh, Amy Knops and and so on, are, are doing great great work there. But uh, how how can how can people do more? A beyond conversation is what I'm saying. Support each other as much as possible and swallow. The and what, ego. And what, what does that look like, Amy? I just want to try and dig okay. a little bit deeper so on this. Like, what does that me... support like? Because I think a lot of people will, a lot of people will say that they're supporting each other, but but what does real support look like? So let me give you an example that seems to happen a lot. Let's say someone accomplished something, even no matter how big or how small. There's always that paying a little bit, whether uh, consciously or subconsciously of, well, why wasn't it me? Well, if she did it, why didn't I do that? Why did she get published and I didn't? Why is she presenting and I'm not presenting? Why is she getting that award and I'm not getting that award? And instead of congratulating each other, we're having those conversations or we start to shut each other out. So instead of going to each other's award ceremonies or each other's concerts or each other's performances at Midwest or each other's clinics at Midwest or wherever, we have that, well, I don't know if I really want to go because I can't believe I wasn't accepted. Hmm. And I'll say that I've had some of those feelings too. I'm completely guilty. And I think a lot of people are guilty of that, whether or not they're going to admit it. So it's really thinking about how are you reacting to the news that you are given and what are you doing about it? Are you sharing, you know, that uh, Courtney Schneider just did a fantastic concert, all featuring women. And it's a, it is amazing what she did and all female concert. And are you sharing that? Are you talking about it? Are you trying to see if there's some ways that you can do that? Or are you sitting there going, man, she was the first one. You know, I really wanted to do that and going through and that. So I think it's more of our reactions and helping each other out or, you know, even conferences going and who's sitting by themselves, who isn't going to Miller's pub, who is, you know, at the end of the day, going upstairs to their room. What are other people doing? No matter the gender, no matter the identity, no matter what it is, bringing on those new folk that I know when I had my first Midwest experience, and I'm just talking a lot about Midwest since it just happened for us. Yeah, so. Of course. And, and it's probably um, something that a lot of people are, are familiar yeah. with too. Yeah. I mean, you see the people who are hanging out together and everyone is, you know, meeting at their different booths and they're going to dinner together and they're doing this and then and that. And it's a reunion. Like we talked about at Midwest, but for some people that it's their first time that are younger, they're by themselves, eating lunch by themselves, yeah. not knowing. So just, you know, get out of your shell, introduce people, bring people in. It's, you know, it's that whole like middle school lunch table. I think that's honestly the best way that we can really support each other is, you know, applaud each other. And when someone does something great, applaud them and learn from it. If you feel jealous, learn from it. What can you do? And then look at the next generation of music educators and how are we bringing them on to the party? How are we bringing them into the pub at the same time and getting to know them so that they're not getting lost? Because this next generation of music educators is going to be more diverse now that we're having these conversations and that we're getting these, you know, we're looking out of who's in our programs and how are we keeping students in our programs? And especially now through COVID, how are we keeping them engaged with 
Are we going to be in person? Are we not? And so all of that diversity, now we have it and now we need to keep nurturing it and bring them on board. If any of that makes sense. <laughs> it, it really does. Because, you know, microaggressions can really create a, yeah. a, a toxic uh, environment. And a lot of what you're saying here might be happening subconsciously sometimes. You, people just, you know, not sharing something on Facebook or not liking something on Facebook, or, you know, and they sound, it sounds so... Um, it sounds so petty when you put it that way, right? And, and you go, oh, that doesn't matter. But you know what it does when people aren't supporting your stuff and when you're, they're not, not, not sharing or, and, and then in, in reality, in, in, in person, not sitting down beside you for lunch or not sitting beside you at a concert, those little micro, not microaggressions can create an environment that you're like, I'm not accepted here and, and, and maybe the grass is greener. Um, somewhere else and, and micro I don't know, help what's the opposite of microaggression micro help can just mean so macro much. help let's go with macro <laughs> macro help, help. <laughs> macro uh, assistance <laughs> those those little things that you do to just make some, someone feel uh welcome and I know as as like because I'm an outsider to the system completely Amy I'm not a music educator by training you know I'm not from the US but those those people that have helped me and just welcomed me and 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 uh, allowed me to come to dinner with them or how you know gives me give me a milkshake and kitty O'Shea's it makes me feel welcome it makes me feel part of the community and it's a community that I want to give back to then as as a result of that um so maybe the answer probably isn't as difficult as people make it out to be maybe but but it needs right. to be consistent and and never ending uh, yes. attention to these details would, would would i be right in saying that yes i think so it's as simple as saying hi to someone you don't know you know say hi to someone you don't know for the people that you don't know say congratulations yeah. i think it's as simple as that you know congratulations i'm so proud of you this is amazing or hello what's your name do you want to come to lunch with me do you want to do this do you want to do that because it, there is you know, a big, I think there's a divide and it's an age divide. And I started to find this in some of my studies as well, that there is a divide. Um, one of the other things that you can really do is a mentor, you know, find someone and mentor someone. I mean, even being here at Texas A&M and I know as much as I love my job and I love this whole stat that I'm, you know, the first female. Okay, what am I doing about that? is I'm trying to, I, I have my door open constantly. I have conversations with my students as much as possible. I started to come to band rehearsal an hour earlier than I planned to on game days. I would get up earlier just because I noticed that a lot of students who are about to go out and student teach, they just had questions and just wanted to talk to me about my experiences and just how, what can I do and how, what was this like? And how did you do this? And what, did, you know, and just little things that would come up when it's like the sun is just rising on Saturday and I could have spent that extra hour in bed. But now some of these students are going to end up being my private conducting students. And, you know, so what, what am I doing with the things that I've just been, you know, lucky enough and grateful enough to have received in my life, giving back somehow to the next generation? Well, Amy, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that we were able to get um, into this a little bit and, and talk yes. in, in some detail. Uh, I know we, we touched on some of these uh, topics in, in Midwest, so it's been great yeah. to be able to speak in a little bit more detail about them. Um, before we move on to our off the rostrum section, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, maybe you might have a suggestion of a composer that we may not um be aware of that we should be aware of someone that we should either listen to or program uh, and investigate their works. Would you have someone in mind? So the two that I have in mind, and I'm lucky to see that he's starting to come up a little bit more is Kataj Copley, who he is Omar Thomas's student and his work is absolutely brilliant that the wind symphony here premiered one of his pieces earlier last semester. And it was the entire audience, I think, was just incredibly moved. And he himself is a fantastic guy. I mean, he is awesome. So just, you know, getting to know him and getting to know that composer, but definitely look at his work and be on the lookout for him because he's going to be a name that I think is going to be in everybody's library sooner than you think. Cool. The other one that we met this year is Nathan Hudson. 
And he is uh, right now in the New York area. And we premiered one of his pieces as well. And it was written, uh, it was a clarinet concerto. And again, just incredibly well written, very unique perspective of music that he has. And it just made a great addition to our concert. And now, you know, him and I, we start to stay in contact and I cannot wait to see some of the other music that he puts out. But I would say definitely those two. Well, awesome. I'll make sure that we have links to uh, their work and their their um, their their body of work in, in the show notes, uh, and you'll be able to check that out at globalbandroom.com. So let's find out a little bit more about Amy from a non-musical point of view with our off-the-rostrum off the uh, section. So let's start with an easy one. Uh, what's your favorite movie, Amy? That's not so easy. I don't know anymore <laughs> what my favorite movie is, but I do like movies that make you think. So like, you know, like an Ocean's Eleven type thing where you have to go oh, back yeah. and be like, Wait, heist movies. Yeah, like what, what happened there? I need to watch it again. Or, you know, like an Inception type movie where you go back and really have to see. But I do have to say that I'm in love with the Star Wars franchise. Cool. And I'm very excited for the Matrix movie. So. Are you watching Boba Fett right now? I am not, but it is on my list of stuff that I am most likely going to start today. It's just visually amazing. I I, I, I love it. Uh, only episode, episode one is oh, episode two is out today as we're recording actually, so we'll have to watch that. Okay, uh, outside of music, what was your first job? Did you have any jobs as a teenager? So my first, my very very first job was actually working at the synagogue that I was. I was a teacher though, so I was a teacher's assistant. <laughs> but as far as something that has nothing to do with music or teaching, uh, I was a bookseller at Walden Books, which I don't even know if they exist anymore. It was outside of the Borders Corporation, but I was a bookseller with my best friend in high school, and it was a fantastic job because almost nobody came into the bookstore. <laughs> we could sit there and do our our homework the entire time. One of our big things was going through to make sure that the truffles that we would sell at the cash register weren't squeezed, because if they were like damaged in any way, we had to throw them out. So we would just sometimes be like, oops, and then eat them. So clearly you weren't selling too many books if the, if no, the truffles being squeezed was it. Someone stole a bunch of books one day. That was a very exciting day. We had to call the mall police to go and hunt him down. So that was an exciting day. Oh, well. <laughs> but I actually did some of the um, the Harry Potter releases. So oh, I got cool. To, yeah, so we got to see the book before it came out. We weren't allowed to read it, but we I did do some of the Harry Potter releases. Did so you that do 12 o'clock midnight releases or anything like that? Yep, 12 yeah. o'clock midnight at the Danbury Fair Mall and being there. And so that was pretty cool to be on that side. That is cool. Okay, yeah. well, if you could have a drink or a dinner, uh, whatever you want, uh, with a celebrity, who would it be? Oh, I think just, I have to say it because she just passed, would be Betty White. Oh, I mean, yeah. you know, I think that all of us on New Year's Eve, we saw that and I think all of us were like, ah, damn. So I have to say her that, you know, the fact that she was 99 and everyone thinks that she died too soon. You know, I saw a <laughs> meme that said that that means that she lived her life in a certain way. And I think she was you know, an incredible woman and she was older than sliced bread. And so I would love to have had the chance to have met her. I think, uh, what did I say? She she left left us wanting more like any good yeah. show person. Uh, yes. I, thought, I thought that was lovely. Um, what is the strangest thing that you've ever had to eat? Ooh. So when I was in Iceland, it's either one of these three things. It's either puffin or two, we'll say two. Ooh. So puffin or whale, which to me seems strange as an American to eat your national bird, to be able to do <laughs> that. You know, like to us, the eagle, like you don't touch that thing. And so right. to be eating a puffin and it's on like every menu and I was like, okay, I gotta do this. Even though they're so cute, but it's their national bird. So that was, I was like, okay. Um, and then having whale, because I guess I could, and so why not? So those would be the two strangest. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, puffins are this like really cute little They're bird. So I didn't. Never... Yes, but it's okay because I honestly didn't really like it too much, so I wouldn't eat it again. So. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, last question then. Who is your hero? 
Ooh, who is my hero? Um, I would have to say, this is gonna sound really lame, but my parents, I think, are my heroes. I have to put both of them together. <laughs> that both of them have been through a lot in their lives, and the fact that they raised my brother and I just so well, and were so supportive, and we both turned out great. So whatever they did for parenting, <laughs> I, you know, if I'm lucky enough one day to have children, I hope that I'm able to be the same type of parent. But just both of them, I've looked up to pretty much my entire life and I still do today. And especially the love that they have for each other after all these years is something that, you know, I hope to have when I've been married for 40 years. If again, if I'm lucky enough to have that. Well, that's a lovely way to, to, to finish the interview, Amy. Uh, and links to all of the articles and uh, tools and, and, and conversations that we've had will be on the show notes. But where can people find out more about you if they if they want to want to get in contact? Uh, more about me would be on my website, which is just amybovin.com. And my contact information is on there. So you can search there or... Uh, you can probably find me on Facebook. I'm a little bit difficult to find on Facebook. So probably the best way is through my website. Well, Amy, Happy New Year to you. And uh, you. looking forward to hearing about all of the, uh, the things that you're doing and projects that you're involved in in 2022. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Amy. Thank you so much again for joining me and my guests in the band room this week. I'll be back next episode talking to more great guests from around the band world, so head over to wherever you get your podcasts from and make sure you subscribe. If you've enjoyed the episode, maybe even leave us a review and share it with your band buddies. In the meantime, you can stay up to date with me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Global Bandroom and on our website, globalbandroom.com. Until next time, I'll see you back in the band room.